Congratulations. You've reached uh, the last evening of our time together. And I'd like to talk tonight about the silent, illuminated mind that moves into activity. Sometimes we talk about these uh, final evenings or the practice that we engage in from this final day into the new day of moving into uh, our homes, places from which we came, as practicing in daily life. But I, I think sometimes when we talk about it in that way, that it feels as if the practice that we do here is different than the practice that we do there. And I'd like to really talk about the fact that you're not really um, about to do something different. But that your practice is just continuing. It is moving into a different form of activity and a different way of being but yet it's still practice. Certainly the intensity of retreat ends tomorrow. And if we've found some measure of freedom in our hearts, some tenderness, some connection, then the question may naturally arise for you of how we can bridge this transition into a different way of practicing. And we want to do that so that the qualities that we may have cultivated and begun to develop or continue to develop in our retreat are not lost. That they don't become dimmed. And indeed, perhaps, they can even be further developed. And that's what I hope for you. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to reflect on together tonight. So we come into the monastery to lay a groundwork for our practice, for, to, for training the mind into wisdom and compassion. And now we go into the marketplace. We go back into the marketplace And we make use of this groundwork. We make use of it, hopefully, in a wise and compassionate way. So for me, I know that when I come to the last day of a retreat, I start to kind of reflect on all of those times when I may have... uh, been practicing mindlessness rather than mindfulness. And there's a kind of poignancy and regret to those moments that I may have lost, but never mind, it's okay. Um, There was still something that was being developed and built. So then I start to worry about, you know, will these, these, this taste of freedom or 
or the qualities of uh, mindfulness and awareness and uh, loving kindness and compassion and equanimity that have been tasted, will they uh, regress or will I lose the intensity that uh, I developed? And so if you're feeling that way too, there may be this feeling that you can hold on to practice in a really tight way. And we may even have some fantasy that we're going to be able to practice in exactly the same way that we practiced here. And be still and quiet and non-reactive and practice rain, right? in the midst of the boss yelling or someone stealing the parking space when I'm late for work or the relationship falling apart or uh, someone that I love is seriously ill. So we try to hold on to these qualities of mind and heart that may have emerged over these days of sitting and walking and wishing well, paying intimate attention to the body and the mind and the heart, the thoughts, the emotions. And so we've discovered and established some trust in this uh, loving and creative space that can emerge when we create this beautiful presence in the mind with what is difficult. Or we allow a thought to come and a thought that may have been uh, previously compelling or that seemed to haunt us or be a kind of boss. When we allow it to kind of arise and pass away in the mind it's a, without engaging it. It's a kind of exciting moment, isn't it? And we hope that the space and these loving and creative qualities that have evoked, been evoked by your practice, that have begun to be revealed, that they're not lost as we return to the work of family and job and play and all of the things that we do on a diurnal basis from day to day. Yet we know that life happens and we can be knocked off our perch. We wonder whether the seeds we've planted can survive the harsh weather of uh, the winds of life, the conditions and the difficulties. This is from Audre Lorde. She says, and it's called coping. She says, it has rained for five days running. Feels like here, right? The world is a round puddle of sunless water where small islands are only beginning to cope. A young boy in my garden is bailing out water from his flower patch. When I ask him why, 
he tells me, young seeds that have not seen sun forget and drown easily. Young seeds that have not seen sun forget and drown easily. We wonder, can these seeds that we've planted survive the harsh weather and conditions of the difficulties of life? Because we know how it is to be knocked around by the tumult of our daily lives, by the barrage of bad news and the overwork and busyness and despair. We remember what it's like to be back there, right? Where we're overworked and busy and more than our bodies and psyches can endure. We can deceive ourselves about the nature of possibility and the openings for change. We can get stuck in despair and cynicism or find ourselves caught up in rigid relationship to uh, all of the um, obligations that we're that we set for ourselves and all of the ways in which we get caught up in the patterns of our human relationships. And not only are we subjected to these vicissitudes of our own minds, but we're also subject to uh, the messages in our culture. More is more, more is better more is the right thing and how long-term vision then gets sacrificed for short-term and immediate gains. We're convinced by all of the messages of our culture that salvation lies in our separateness, in our individuality, in our being able to be the rugged individual that pulls ourselves up by our bootstraps and gets it done. And that we didn't, don't need to worry about how what we do affects the web of life. And I call it the web of life because I'm really struck by a, an ancient teaching about life. Um, it's called Indra's Net. It's a, I think it's a Mahayana teaching. Where, the, where life is depicted, or um, the metaphor of it is that it's a, li- it's, a, it's a net in which every single node is a jewel. And every jewel reflects all of the other jewels in the net. It's kind of the ancient uh, um, template probably for the hologram. Right, where each part of the hologram carries um, all of the hologram. So instead of understanding that, 
we get caught in the uh, cultural conditioning that uh, competition is what makes us successful and collaboration gets pushed aside. We are propagandized about scarcity and the portrayal of our world is on the brink of economic and ecological collapse. The media is full of it. And perhaps we are on the brink of ecological collapse. But, you know, we debate whether uh, it's anything that we're doing. Even though the scientists tell us that it's surely our own actions that are causing it. And this constant barrage of information disables us and disconnects us from our own internal sources of wisdom and vision and spaciousness or equanimity. And we find ourselves in a space of fear and wanting. So who will be the one to change this? Who could it possibly be? from Marion Wright Edelman, who says we must, who's a um, wonderful woman who's worked tirelessly, an African-American woman who's worked in over many, many years in the interests of uh, children. We must not, in trying to think about how we can make a big difference, ignore the small daily differences we can make which over time add up to big differences that we often cannot foresee. I love that because she gives us hope that we can certainly, in the face of all of these ways in which we're living in a culture that produces racism and homophobia and oppression and classism, We may sometimes, in all of the ways in which I've talked about uh, the way the culture messages to us, we may feel that it's overwhelming and that there's nothing that can be done by us, that we're too small. There are a couple of um, stories, one one saying, which is, um, if you think that you're too small to make a difference, 
spend the night in bed with a mosquito. That's good enough. <laughs> so we can make a difference. And what is it that makes this difference? Who is the one that will change the world? I'm reminded of Aung San Suu Kyi, a beautiful Buddhist practitioner. I'm sure you all know who she is. She's the 19... Um, 1991 Nobel Peace Prize winner. Her sons were 16 and 12 when she was arrested and she was not able to see them again for years. It was over two years before, before she saw her husband again. Describing her imprisonment, she wrote, I refused to accept anything from the military. Sometimes I didn't even have enough money to eat. I became so weak from malnourishment that my hair fell out and I couldn't get out of bed. Once when she was walking down a village road with several followers, soldiers jumped out of a jeep, aimed their guns and prepared to fire. She waved away her supporters and walked toward the soldiers alone. At the last minute, a superior officer arrived and rescinded the orders. She later said, courage comes from cultivating the habit of refusing to let fear dictate one's actions. Her steadfast commitment to her spiritual practice in such situations and her personal loss is of course tremendously inspiring when we think about what lays before us in terms of continuing our practice. She said, the spiritual dimension becomes particularly important in a struggle in which deeply held convictions and strength of mind are the chief weapons against armed repression. So don't think that your practice that continues in life doesn't make a difference. Our ability to uh, move into life with this practice of mindfulness and heartfulness and bodyfulness, as Eugene calls it, surely has the uh, potential and surely will change the world. Because we are so connected. So what does it mean to practice in the world? In Pam's uh, talk, 
she mentioned the Four Noble Truths, that the Buddha said that he taught one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And what we know is that every, all of the teachings that he gave over his 45 years of teaching were an expansion or an explanation or a deepening of the understanding of those Four Noble Truths. That he, he essentially said that there is dukkha, as Pam talked about. This feeling that uh, there's a wheel with a hub and an axle and they don't fit quite perfectly. And so what happens? There's a bumpy ride, right? As the, the wheel turns and the, the axle is not quite fitting in the hub, the ride gets really bumpy. That's dukkha. And then he said there's a cause for that, for that arising dukkha in our lives. And he called it the, the mind that clings, essentially, the mind that wants things to be other than they are. That is, Pam talked about the mind that grabs onto what is pleasant and wants more, wants it to stay, even though it's impermanent. We know everything is impermanent. Or pushes away that which is unpleasant, even though we have no control over whether, over the unpleasant arising or not arising. We know that. We certainly have probably noticed that in our five days here. So those are the, the first two, the kind of, you know, he didn't say it, but he said, I got good news and bad news. So give gives us the bad news first, right? And now the good news, the third noble truth, it can cease. There's complete possibility of cessation of dukkha in our lives. And then the, the fourth truth, that there's a path. There's a path to the ending of dukkha. <clears throat> so essentially, what we're studying here, what we're practicing and reflecting on here, is mostly the meditative aspect of the path, because those, the Eightfold Path has three aspects. The first is wisdom, the second is integrity, cultivating integrity, and the fourth is meditation. And so we've been really delving into meditation and really practicing deeply. And the first night we talked about the integrity aspect of the path. We really um, took five precepts and uh, undertook the uh, the understanding and the practice that in order to do this meditative practice that our, um, our activity had to be somewhat purified. That we don't steal, we don't uh, tell lies, we don't use sex to harm, we don't drink and make the mind drink or take drugs and make the mind 
um, he, uh, heedless. And we certainly don't harm. So that we're practicing that also uh, simultaneously with our meditative practice. And then we've been reflecting on what's this mind-body? How does it work? What happens? And just looking at, uh, and I'm sure for you over the time that you've been here, that you've seen uh, acts that you've done in the past, how they've played out, what's happened. So we understand with some wisdom that, there's, that there are consequences to our acts. And we also look at our intention. How, how are we, what are we intending with everything we think, say, and do? So this full path that we've been uh, in some ways explicitly and implicitly practicing is the same practice that you take out into daily life. It's not different. So you practice um, morality, you cultivate a life of non-harming in body, speech, and mind. And through the practice of meditation and mindfulness, mindfulness and uh, concentration and energetic movement, some wisdom comes. And I'm sure you've seen that in your practice over the week. And that is, is, is not different from what we're taking into life. And of course, this is the movement from suffering to liberation. So daily life is a brilliant laboratory for understanding and awakening. The groundwork is laid here. And this understanding and awakening is not just on an individual level, but it's on a collective level. Because we can look around the world and we can see how um, individual suffering manifests in collective forms and how society is a manifestation and projection of our own internal turmoil. Individual hatreds lead to created systems of violence and oppression and war and racism and homophobia and multiple abuses. That greed leads to unjust economic systems, distrust of others, the construction of individuals as factors of production, non-livable wages, exploitation, not only of people but of natural resources, and the insatiable desire to consume regardless of cost. And there's 
delusion, so greed, hatred, and delusion, these three defilements in the mind that the Buddha said were the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Delusion in the news and advertisements promotes a sense of individualism and isolation, as we've talked about. And we know it doesn't have to be this way. We know, certainly from our practice this week, that we have a wellspring of wisdom, goodwill, compassion. And so we can look at our intention. What is the transformation that we seek for our world and for ourselves? We all desire freedom and a way that expresses the best of what we have to offer as human beings. Our truth, our joy, our complex intuitive intelligence, our kindness. So we continue as we practice in daily life to create that spaciousness in the mind and that equanimity that provides us with access to our deepest capacities. And this is done, now Now the real practice begins, in the midst of difficulty and turmoil and tension and conflict. Because these skills are just developed in the meditation hall, but then we kind of walk them out into our life and we really see how, how effective they are. So when we deeply, compassionately connect with our experience in any moment, without clinging or rejecting, but allowing for what is arising, and we're engaged with wisdom without struggle or resistance, wherever we are and however the conditions are, This changes everything. And real meaningful change happens in these places of compassionate and powerful acceptance. Now I want to talk a little bit about acceptance because I know that in our uh, Buddhist culture we talk about acceptance, 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 acceptance. And what happens is we can get the wrong end of the stick, right? We think that that means that we're kind of this um, wet noodle or we're, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, a inert protoplasm, <laughs> right? That there's nothing that we need to do, that everything is fine just as it is, that we... Just we say, okay, well, that's how it is, so I guess I have to accept it. And we, so that in the face of injustice or in the face of all of the ways in which we harm ourselves and others, that we simply accept. And yet what is really pointed to is skillful and compassionate action and activity in the world. And the acceptance 
is the, is the beginning. That we see how things are and we are clear about exactly how things are happening and what is the state of affairs. And how do we do that? We do that by seeing, by listening, by seeing as clearly as we possibly can. And we've gotten the tools and the skills in our practice here to do that, to be still and illumined in the mind so that when we are faced with a situation, our first task is not to react to it, but to actually see how things are right now, right here, through our deep listening and our deep seeing. And from that, there's an understanding that grows of causes and conditions and how, and how things are being produced so that when we act, we act not from a place of reactivity, of that place of, I don't like this because it's unpleasant, and I like that, bring that to me because it's pleasant, but from a place of real wisdom. And because we are acting from a place of wisdom, our response is skillful. So as Larry said in his talk, we're not you know, demanding peace with raised fists. but we're actually understanding how non-peace arises. And we're able to work to see how we can um, work with the causes and conditions to shift so that peace emerges. So when we work clearly with seeing and hearing what is, we gain the ground to imagine what might be possible. We work from the illumined and still silent mind. This is from Master Shen Yang, who gives beautiful instructions about how to um, take the silent and illumined mind into work. He says, when we eat, we should just eat. When we sleep, we should just sleep. When we sit, we should just sit. And when we work, we should just work. So ask yourself, where is your mind when doing these things? To practice silent illumination means putting body and mind to the task at hand. This also means applying the best method appropriate for the task. If you do it single-mindedly and with your best effort, you will complete the work with a stable and relaxed mind. You approach the task with a plan that takes into account past, and future. But once you start the task, focus on the present. Carry out the task with an even and ordinary mind, knowing I inserted pleasantness and unpleasantness 
And he says, and noting feelings of like or dislike, good or bad, and discursive thoughts. When you complete the task, reflect on whether changes are needed, whether the job was done well, and how you can do better in the future. This is how to practice silent illumination while working. But the principles are the same no matter what you are doing. Practice is not limited to sitting meditation. It should not happen that as soon as you get off the cushion, life becomes stressful. Be very clear about your body's presence and its sensations. When meaningless sensations arise, do not respond to them. That is silence. Always maintain this clear awareness of the total body-mind. That is illumination. Be very clear about the environment without being influenced by it. That is totality. The sum of all the above is silent illumination. Now, he says, please practice silent illumination wholeheartedly. Isn't that beautiful? Our ability to allow the power of our practice to inform our lives is dependent on our ability to connect intimately with ourselves, to connect intimately with our wisdom, to connect intimately with each other. And when we connect with our common experience of being human, of living and breathing, then we can healthily engage, explore, and celebrate our very real distinctions as individuals too. Even though we connect in unity, we can still appreciate our differences. And this unity that is complete, intimate connectedness, is love. And I'm talking about love as more than deep emotion or the pull to intimacy. It's a love that can become intimate with grief. It can stand firmly in the fire of conflict and it can witness horror without recoiling and with compassion. It's the kind of love that keeps our senses open and doesn't shrink from what is true. It's absolutely, relentlessly inclusive of our experience, of our lives, and of our fellow humans.
Aldous Huxley says, the spiritual journey does not consist of arriving at a new destination where a person gains what he did not have or becomes what she is not. I said she, he said he. It consists in the dissipation of one's own ignorance concerning oneself and life and the gradual growth of that understanding. That begins the spiritual awakening. So our meditation practice is seeing clearly the body we have, the mind we have, the domestic situation that we have, the job we have, the people who are in our lives. And our practice is training the mind to understand how it reacts to all the phenomena in our lives as they're presented from moment to moment. So what you've been doing here has been training the mind to do that in life. Because if our practice here is not portable into life, then it's really, it may have been a wonderful week, but so what? But actually you've gotten a really powerful understanding of this mind and body. And in the text in the Satipatthana Sutta, which a few of us have mentioned over the week, where the Buddha introduces mindfulness, he exhorted the practitioner to be aware internally and externally 12 times in that sutta. And it's just 10,000 words. So I think he was trying to get our attention, right? So what does it mean? So for me, it means that internal awareness or the interior life of cultivation and development of clarity and awareness and wisdom and compassion in the mind is the ground of practice. And it's important and necessary to understand the mind that knows and the mind that judges internally, and it also means that we develop external awareness. We take that very grounded awareness to see clearly what's happening in our environment and in the people in whose midst we are. And it's also seeing how they are connected, the internal and the external, and how they dance with each other and how they influence each other. And it means there's no disconnection between the internal and the external. And our inner life is not disconnected from our outer life. And when I even say that, that's a conceptual duality that isn't really, doesn't really match reality. Because spirituality is not Uh, separate from seeing clearly our body, our minds, our domestic situation, our jobs, as I said before, and the people in our lives. And it's recognizing not only that the fabric of our lives is made of one thread, but that the thread of all our lives are interwoven. So this is from Thomas Merton. 
who had a, an awa- a sudden awakening in Louisville, Kentucky, at the corner of 4th and Walnut Streets, in the center of the shopping district, right? So, you know, watch out. <laughs> you too could have something happen right on the, in the middle of the mall. It's Christmas. He said, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. He's talking about the monastery. The whole illusion of a separate holy existence is a dream. Not that I question the reality of my vocation, he was a monk, or of my monastic life, but the conception of, quote, separation from the world that we have in the monastery too easily presents itself as a complete illusion. And then he says, we are in the same world as everybody else the world of the bomb, the world of race hatred, the world of technology, the world of mass media, big business, revolution, and all the rest. The sense of liberation, he says, from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. And then he says, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. This changes nothing in the sense and value of my solitude, for it is in fact the function of solitude to make one realize such things with clarity. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem, he says, would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So what can we do in our, when we go home? We'll talk tomorrow about ways of practice, etc. So it's not my intent tonight to really give you nuts and bowls and practical um, advice. We'll do that tomorrow. But you can make a commitment to daily practice. And you can, in that practice, learn how to shift your relationship, continue to learn how to shift your relationship to what arises in the mind, what arises in the internal world and in the external world. And if you can 
be steadfastly present to what is coming up in your um, meditation practice, in your sitting practice, then you can be present to all of what is happening in the world, to the facts of deforestation and species extinctions and all the insanities that are happening in the world today. And that unconditional loving presence is the first and essential act that we must make. Simply to be there, to be present with open eyes and open heart, open ears, and everything else will flow from that. Because without that openness, our movement from wisdom to compassion is bound to falter. And we need both. Compassion is not a secondary practice. Loving kindness is not a secondary practice. My filing system isn't so great, is it? See what happens? (laughs) So I'll tell you who said this after I've read it. He said, you know, there's a lot of talk in this country about the federal deficit, but I think we should talk more about our empathy deficit. The ability to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to see the world through the eyes of those who are different from us, the child who is hungry, the steel worker who's been laid off, the family who lost the entire life they built together when the storm came to town. When you think like this, when you choose to broaden your ambit of concern and empathize with the plight of others, whether they are close friends or distant strangers, it becomes harder not to act, harder not to help. That's our president. (laughs) Me too. So the world is depending on you to continue your practice. Because security and harmony in the world is is conditioned on our internal harmony and tranquility because we are the world. We are who make up society. 
an individual in conflict and distress will act towards others in an aggressive and hostile manner. Peace will be in the society when each of us is at peace. So social and personal liberation are just aspects of the same practice. And through our practice, we see that freedom from external oppression is dynamically related to liberation from our internal mechanisms of suffering. This is Michael Stone from Occupy Wall Street. He says, nonviolence is the power of facing what is actually going on in each and every moment and responding as skillfully as possible. The depth of our awakening, our humanness, has everything to do with how we care for others. Our sphere of awareness begins to include everything and everyone. The way we respond to our circumstances shows our commitment to non-harming. We release the construct of us versus them and we live into a web of relationship that links each and every one of us and we're not creating it, it is already there. We don't need to construct it. Because skillful response is not constructed or premeditated. It's the natural outflow of a present and compassionate heart. It's what Eugene referred to as freedom from the known. That we don't have to think it through to get there. That because our hearts and minds are ready through our practice, the skillful response emerges. So instead of being limited to ignorance and reactivity, we have encountered a path that finds fullness in presence, that leads inexorably and inevitably to freedom. And how that simple shift from reactivity to presence will make a difference in our lives and in the world. We see our emotions, our thoughts, just as they are in this very moment, in this very room, on this very seat, wherever this room or this seat happens to be. It's not trying to make them go away. It's not trying to make them better than we, make ourselves better than we are, but just seeing clearly with precision, with kindness and with gentleness. This is true whether we're on the cushion, we're in the Dharma hall, or we're at work in a difficult and pinched situation. 
we open our hearts and our minds to everyone that we meet. If you have a bad temper and you feel that you harm yourself and others, you might think your practice will make that bad temper go away. You'll be that sweet person that you always thought you should be, right? The thought that we should change ourselves into someone else is fundamentally a form of aggression towards ourselves. It's not trying to get rid of anger or any of the other afflictive states, but to make friends with it, to see it clearly, with precision, with honesty, and with gentleness. That's our work. And so we don't judge ourselves as bad people, although we, we, we know, you know, that um, we have work to do. We're not repressing our anger or acting it out or fear or any of the other afflictive emotions. But we understand ourselves viscerally and experientially with a kind of metta, a kind of softness, kindness. And through this experiential understanding, wisdom dawns. And it's a journey, it's not a destination. So our practice in life is part of, is is continuing the journey that we've either begun here or continued here, depending on whether you're new to practice, new to retreat practice or, or not. So we can indeed recognize, accept, investigate, and not let anything define us. What it requires is a true act of generosity, an open heart even to ourselves, the willingness to try another way to change old habits, even though we know we've spent a a precious lifetime cultivating the ones we already have. (laughs) It it requires patience because we have intractable habits of mind and truthfulness to be honest about what's happening and determination and energy and wisdom and equanimity and metta. This cultivation is the work of a lifetime. And you can do it. I know you can. I've sat with you, with some of you, and really seen the beauty in your practice, in your eyes, in your heart, even though you may have been in distress. But your willingness to have been here and to have planted the seeds and to have tended them and to have made uh, such a beautiful arc, such a beautiful journey through this week. I know that your continuing journey will open the mind and the heart even more deeply and that your wisdom and compassion will continue to grow leaps and bounds. And that is what I wish for you.
Thank you so much for your practice. So let's sit together. If only they could all see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.